When I noticed that one of the lectionary texts for today's sermon is from Job, I was simply delighted. Now, delight, when I think of the book of Job, is a fairly new phenomenon for me. Up until several years ago, I found Job to be so difficult as to be not really worth reading, quite frankly. Yes, I had read it, but it seemed to be a herky-jerky mishmash of components. A simplistic story providing parenthesis around some lofty-sounding conversation that apparently had a line, but I couldn't follow it. A whirlwind, a booming speech from God, more words from Job, too much. It was all too much. Well, when I was working on my master's degree, Carol Newsom, a professor of Old Testament from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, which is in Atlanta, was coming to town. She was scheduled to lecture several times over a two-day period on the topic Encountering the Book of Job. Great. And one of my assignments was to attend two of the three lectures and write a reflection on them. Double great. So a Wednesday afternoon in February found me trudging off to encounter Job with the help of Carol. She electrified me. Her lectures were fascinating, her scholarship impeccable, and ooh-wee, the way she handled those pointed questions from my mostly male professors. Yes, Job is a mishmash, she said. But rather than assuming that it was slapped together by a variety of authors over many years and really makes very little sense, maybe one author craftily juxtaposed several genres so that each amplifies and challenges the other. Drawing on the work of Russian Mikhail Bakhtin, she introduced us to the ideas of monologic truth, dialogic truth, and polyphonic text. <laughs> too much, too much for one sermon. But I want to draw on Newsom's insights today as we look at Job, and then to consider whether something from the wisdom dialogue in Job might give us a handle on the professed Mennonite church desire to agree and disagree together in love. As Melanie noted, today's text from chapter 23 is part of a conversation between Job and several friends. This round of Job's comments comes towards the end of what is called the wisdom dialogue, and this spans chapters 3 through 27. The book of Job opens with a basic story, apparently designed to teach something very specific. There was once a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, it starts. Chapter 2 begins, one day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. And the story continues. Chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job starts yelling, what? This is the beginning of the wisdom dialogue, an abrupt change of genre that brings with it a whole different set of assumptions about the world and how it works or doesn't work. According to Newsom, Job characterizes his suffering in terms of experiencing turmoil, the turmoil that accompanies his existence. Job 3, 25 to 26. Truly the thing that I fear has come upon me. 
and what I, be, what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. She says that in the wisdom dialogue, the friends respond with the cultural resources they have available to resist such turmoil. They try to explain Job's turmoil as part of a story that ultimately transcends it. They suggest that the practice of prayer can help bring order to Job's life. And they provide a series of poems about the fate of the wicked that reasserts the moral order of the world and suggests that Job's turmoil has no place in such a properly ordered world. Quote, the genre of the wisdom dialogue requires that Job not be persuaded by the arguments of his friends. And so Job strenuously resists their attempts to recuperate his shattered world. In chapter 23, Job calls for justice from God. God's simultaneous presence, Job says in verse 2, God's hand is heavy despite my groaning, and God's elusiveness, the very next verse, oh, that I knew where I might find God, casts an image of continuing chaos, turmoil. Job wants a day in court with God. He is persistent in his cry to lay out his arguments before God. I get the sense that he's becoming exhausted with his friendly or not so friendly conversation with his friends. And he's implying, I need a new dialogue partner. But he cannot apprehend God. And I hear a bit of sarcasm and longing in the last verse of the chapter. Job wishes he had the privilege of disappearing from the conversation, the privilege that God seems to have. If only I could vanish in darkness, and this darkness would cover my face. Well, the wisdom dialogue is, of course, just that, dialogue, conversation. The opening prose story in Job was designed to teach a particular truth. But even dialogue can be undertaken to do a similar thing, to teach, <coughs> excuse me, to teach something or convince the other of it. Carol Newsom says that kind of discourse presents itself in possession of ready-made truth. Quoting Bakhtin, she says, truth is not born nor is it found inside the head of an individual. It is born between people collectively searching for truth. This is where the term dialogic truth comes in. It is a truth that emerges between people and out of dialogue. Cleverly, not only does the wisdom dialogue highlight the possibility of dialogic truth, but the author placing it smack up against the narrative tale creates another level of dialogue within the book itself. Together, the prose tale and the wisdom dialogue expose each other's assumptions, each other's take on the world, Newsom says. We won't explore that level of dialogue any further this morning, but maybe you can see why the ideas of genre, conversation, and the way truth emerges have been keys unlocking my interest in the book of Job. Back to dialogic truth and bumper cars. Dialogic truth emerges at the point of intersection of several unmerged voices. Yes, that's what we appear to have in the wisdom dialogue of Job. Unmerged voices, 
people talking by each other. Or maybe not. Maybe in the places where their differing understandings of the world collide, the astute observer will recognize something true in the deepest sense, a truth that cannot be spoken by one person, that cannot be summarized and still be authentic, one that requires disparate voices and embodied conversation partners. Unlike ready-made truth that is often expressed in propositional statements and is presented as if it's floating out there somewhere far beyond us, dialogic truth emerges from people in conversation as their perspectives engage one another. Dialogic truth cannot be systematized or summarized. Rather, it's shared and adjusted in future conversations with other conversation partners. This is all a little heady, so let's use a metaphor. Ever since I was a small child and had to ride as a passenger beside my mom as she drove, I've loved the bumper cars. Now, you can find bumper cars in most amusement parks. I apologize if you haven't experienced riding the bumper cars, because my description will be pretty hard to understand. Bumper cars are in a sort of covered pavilion with a sunken floor. They run on electricity, and each car has a thick strip of rubber running around it. The sidewalls around the oval floor on which you navigate are also lined with rubber. The idea is that everyone drives basically in the same direction, going round and round, but you're free to tap, bump, or positively slam into other drivers. It's been too long since I've been on the bumper cars. Let's use the bumper cars to illustrate wisdom dialogue and dialogic truth. You might say that each car represents an unmerged voice, and each collision, each point of contact with another car, whether it's an affable tap or a veritable ram, produces a new learning. It's in that collision that something dawns on you about how you're driving, about what happens when you run into the other person at that particular angle, about the pure joy of riding the bumper cars, about anything. And something else about the bumper cars that we see in the Job Wisdom Dialogue is that the ride simply ends. No one is declared winner. One way of riding doesn't prevail. The ride ends, and you step out of the ring a little wiser and with an appreciation for the experience. Interestingly, this metaphor helps us make a link between our Job text and the New Testament reading. While today's reading from Mark 10 does not fit into the wisdom dialogue genre, it does detail several intellectual and emotional collisions between conversation partners that produce sparks of new understanding and new questions. You might take some time to examine this passage on your own. But I imagine the rich man walking away from Jesus felt like he'd taken a good whack. The disciples are perplexed when Jesus bumps them with this zinger, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the reign of God. He apparently keeps chasing them around the ring because he follows up by repeating himself and adding the outrageous camel through the eye of a needle image. The text says the disciples are greatly astounded. 
This is the second time in the space of a few minutes that Jesus collided with their understanding in a shocking way. The disciples ask, who then can be saved? Jesus' response is somewhat unsatisfactory. It doesn't seem to produce a final conclusion. And this, of course, is in the vein of the wisdom dialogue. Riding the bumper cars is fun. When you slam into someone on the bumper cars, you don't give them a look of hatred. You grin and you laugh and your eyes twinkle. If you're on the bumper cars and you feel a whack and you look over and the person who just hit you is looking at you with hatred, you immediately know that person has other issues. <laughs> issues from outside the arena that have been inappropriately inserted into this interaction. Does this mean that every dialogue needs to be fun? No, but the conversation partners should conduct careful self-examination and step out of the dialogue if they recognize their interactions are predicated on fear. Fear often produces hatred of the other. Because fear, the fearful one perceives the other to be a threat to survival. A dialogue that visits truth on the participants must be undertaken in an environment that is free as possible from huge power imbalance, from inappropriately projected emotions, and done in a setting that is ripe for careful listening to and acknowledgement of other voices. This brings me to agreeing and disagreeing in love. I'd gotten the impression that this document, which featured prominently at the Mennonite Church USA convention in July, was something new. Considering that formal denominational administrator Jim Schrag mentioned in a June article in the Mennonite, which was a month before the convention, that, quote, we might dust off our churchwide statement on agreeing and disagreeing in love, unquote, I suspect it's been around for a while. But the statement has gained new relevancy in light of the call from the grassroots movement Pink Menno and others that the denomination embrace congregations that invite lesbian and gay members to be themselves and to participate in faithful, loving relationships and in congregational life. Congregations that set a table of welcome in the desert and are not ashamed of brothers and sisters God has made, gifted, and called to be part of the body of Christ to draw on Ron's image from last week's sermon. Agreeing and disagreeing in love invites church members to pledge to, quote, accept conflict, affirm hope, commit to prayer, go to the other in the spirit of humility, be quick to listen, slow to judge, willing to negotiate, among other things. It seeks to lay the foundation for healthy dialogue in the face of unmerged voices and differing takes on the world. The church gathered in Columbus this summer, reaffirmed this statement, and invited congregations to begin talking about healthy sexuality. Let me highlight briefly that when I was asked to preach, there were a number of dates I could have chosen. I picked today, and only later found out that it is the day designated as Pink Menno Action Sunday. As one who experienced and participated in the Pink Menno Witness at the convention in July, I smiled at this coincidence. Jim Schrag's article in the June 2 issue of the Mennonite I referenced is called The Meanings of Dialogue. 
He observes that in his experience, Mennonites consider dialogue in at least four different ways. The third approach, he notes, involves high ideals, that dialogue is a way to take seriously the work of the Holy Spirit. It focuses on mutual accountability. This approach seems most likely to create a space where dialogic truth can emerge and be recognized. Unfortunately, Jim says of the high ideals folks, I have not met many of this group. Well, what are we going to do? Bicker and undercut other voices in the style of politicians? Try to mandate our own ready-made truth? Or take up a conversation that will be referenced for years to come as a real-life wisdom dialogue that formed and made visible the Mennonite Church as the body of Christ at work in our world? Maybe if we think of ourselves on the same joy-filled bumper car ride, our disparate voices tapping and colliding, creating little dust storms of truth while we move in the direction of Jesus, we will have the best chance of truly agreeing and disagreeing in love, of showing the world the way of God who so loved it, who so loved it and still loves it. May it be so. Amen.